I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So reads the word of God. We are created to be worshipers of God. That was the beginning of humanity. You see it in Genesis 1 and 2. With the creation of Adam and Eve and the blessing of God that says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we might say, fill the earth with what? Just children? Fill the earth with worshipers of God. We might even call that the first great commission because the next great commission comes at the end of Matthew's gospel, most clearly stated. And because of the fall of Adam and Eve and all of their progeny into sin, now the method of going out and proclaiming and filling the earth with worshipers is the proclamation of the gospel, not just reproduction of two image-bearing creatures. So that is where humanity began in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. That is the end of humanity. That's where humanity is headed. That's the outcome, the aim, the telos of humanity, to be together in the presence of God for all eternity. Revelation 21 and 22, we just studied it a few months ago together. So it's the beginning of humanity to be worshipers of God. It's the end, the aim of humanity to be worshipers of God. And that's where humanity is called by God to live all along the way in between those two extremes. And we might attach Romans 12, 1 and 2 to that very statement, that observation of filling in the middle and recognizing that this is what we're called to be, worshipers of God's our primary identity. Here's where I'm a little bit sorry we're not going into verses 3 through 8 this morning as part of this message because what we read there is that we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but we should think of ourselves according to the measure of faith that is given to us. We need to think of ourselves as this, worshipers of God ahead of all else. When we ask, who are you, you usually answer with your name or you answer with your occupation, your vocation, the number of kids you have, how long you've been married, things like that. What we're reading here is that worshipers of God is our primary identity and anything else is thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think as though anything else that's true about us is more important than this one. We're trapped in that understanding. That's why we need God's help to hear and respond to even this familiar portion of Scripture. We are trapped in that understanding. And this passage calls us to live all along the way 
as worshipers of God, first and foremost, with that understanding of who we are. So we understand worship to be adoration. We understand it to be reverence. We understand it to be allegiance to whatever it is that's being worshipped. We understand it as the motivational impulse that shapes our identity, that governs our speech, that, that guides our life. Displayed in our communication, you can tell what people worship by how they speak. You can even tell what they worship oftentimes by how they dress. Maybe it's the, 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 the fashion god of this world that's being worshipped. I personally identify with a different form. Wearing the logo of our favorite team is the easiest way to see this form of worship. Listening to us celebrate our favorite team's strengths and to lament their weaknesses and to receive their wins and losses as our own personal victories and defeats. Not even critiquing that dynamic among us humans at the moment, just observing it, just spotting it, noting it. We were created to be worshipers, and that, that characteristic just permeates who we are. We take that approach, we take that identity into every circumstance we enter. It's part of us. God has made us that way. He's made us to be worshipers. How much more fulfilling it is for us then when we discover the primary object that we were created to worship. It's a joyful moment. It's life-changing. When we finally come into relationship with the one we were created to worship, Paul led us right up to that understanding as last week's text came to a close. And not just to a, a realization of whom we were created to worship, but, but to a bit of a taste of, of how we were called to worship him. Do you remember the verses? Familiar ones again. Verses 33 through 36 of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgment and judgments and, and how inscrutable his ways. They're perfect. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given to him that he might be repaid? Questions that we pointed out come right out of the Old Testament pointing out the fact that God doesn't need our help to know what's absolutely best for us. And he doesn't lack anything needed to achieve that. For, verse 36, from him and through him and to him are all things. You know what that means? It means the entire universe revolves around him. And him alone, to him alone, be glory forever. Amen. That's where Paul left us at the end of last week's text. That's what we were made for. That's the culmination of the first 11 chapters of this letter. 
That's where we land. That's who we are. That's the expression, the response to which we've been led. That's what we were made for. Now, the question is, how does that happen? How does it work? How do we enter into that for which we were made when it is so foreign to us to worship that object rather than the others that we are so drawn to? Paul gives us two charges to tell us how. As the next step in the letter, he gives two charges in these two verses to tell us how. And you see them there in your bulletin. That's our outline this morning. It's creative. I worked hard and long on the wording. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, verse 1. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, verse 2. That's, there's our outline. If you wonder where we are, just see what verse we're in at the moment. That'll be your clue as to where we are in the outline. All right? But this one needs to be simple, and it couldn't be more clear that it needs to be united as one expression. So let's look first at present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, again, not trying to read something into this text. That's the word in Greek that is intended to mean both. By the mercies of God, pause. By the mercies of God, in light of all he's done for you, granting you salvation from the disastrous outcome of your sinful rebellion, that rebellion against him and him personally, by his own unilateral, sovereign intervention, reconciling to you, you to himself at his own cost and giving you an eternal future with him in his new heavens and new earth solely because he's chosen to do so. There it is. There's the mercies of God. In light of all all he's done for you, granting you salvation from the disastrous outcome of your sinful rebellion against him by his own unilateral sovereign intervention, reconciling you to himself at his own cost and giving you an eternal future with him in his new heavens and new earth solely because he's chosen to do so. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's the charge. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now that's a vivid image. A living sacrifice. Sacrifices as we expect to see them are dead. And drained. This is a living sacrifice. This really brings to mind only two scenes from all of Scripture. It brings to mind Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, Genesis 22. And it brings to mind Jesus alone on Mount Calvary in each of the Gospels. In the first of these two, God provided a substitute for the sacrifice. He saw that Abraham was willing to lay his own son on the altar, if that's what God called him to do. 
And then he said, stop, Abraham. I've provided a sacrifice. And the ram was caught in the thicket, and that ram became the sacrifice. The foreshadowing through the anticipated sacrificial system of a coming once-for-all sacrifice, the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. Exodus 12 hadn't happened yet. This was God and Abraham together, the original elect one chosen to be the one through whom the Messiah would be delivered. And God setting up an illustration already of the sacrifice of a son through an expression of love. So in the first, God provided a substitute for the sacrifice. In the second, God's own son, he provided a substitute through the sacrifice. A substitute for each of us who will receive Jesus' sacrifice as satisfaction of the demands of God's holiness to cleanse our sin and to absorb our penalty for it. That's the substitution that God provided through his own son to all who would savingly believe. We've gloried in that very truth. We've gloried in this sacrifice in even some unusual ways this morning, having read about the Passover from Exodus 12. But we have a question here now. Recognizing Jesus as the once-for-all sacrifice, if Jesus is our substitute sacrifice, then why do we still need to present our own bodies as a living sacrifice? What's left to do? What's missing from the original sacrifice that now needs to be supplied by additional sacrifice? Why is more sacrifice needed? Well, my friends, simply put, God has given himself for us in the person of his son, so we now give ourselves to him. That's how it works. He has provided for our life, so that life now belongs to him. And a living sacrifice is the way that that's communicated here in Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul set us up for chapter 12 here, way back in chapter 6. Do you remember it? He even used the same present language a couple times in that chapter. But chapter 6, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, all of us who have trusted Christ as Savior, were baptized into his death? Do you not know that? All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death. We've died with Christ. We illustrate it with every single baptism that we have here at Grace Church, as does the church of Christ around the world. We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That we might live like one who's been sacrificed, who has died to sin and risen to righteousness and glory by God's sovereign purpose and now lives that life 
that we might live like one who's been sacrificed. Because that's the life we receive from Christ, our Savior. We're a living sacrifice because the life we live after trusting Christ as Savior is lived under his reign of life. Not under Adam's reign of death. Excuse me, those are two realms that have been part of the picture here in Romans from the very beginning, anticipated right on up to chapter 5, made explicit there, and the context by which we understand this letter, these two realms the rest of the way. The fight that's going on in Romans 7 is in the heart of a believer who has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, who is now in that realm, but who still is inhabiting the body and living in a sinful world. And it's a struggle. We're a living sacrifice because the life we live after trusting Christ as Savior is lived under his reign of life, not under Adam's reign of death. Paul had just explained that in chapter 5 before making this statement in chapter 6. It was the foundation for this statement. It's just like what he wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 2. And there's so many similarities between Galatians and Romans. We haven't made much of it in our study of Romans, but we did in our study of Galatians. It's like Galatians is the study and Romans is the work of art. Galatians is the little statuesque that says what the final sculpture will look like. That's what we see here in Galatians, and we see this very same truth being celebrated. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul wrote. It is no longer I who live. I've died. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By faith in Christ, we, back to Romans 6, do not present our members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but we present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and our members to God as instruments of righteousness. We present them. Same language. This is what we're doing. We live for Jesus, and we live his life meaning we live it in obedience to him. Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice then is a response to the gracious salvation God has granted us in Christ. It's what happens in us. It doesn't contribute to our salvation, but it does confirm our salvation, meaning that it testifies to the authenticity of our conversion by displaying the newness of life that we perceive by faith in Christ. And even though this obedience of faith, as Paul calls it in the very beginning and very ending of this letter, chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 16, verse 26, even though this obedience of faith doesn't happen automatically in us, we still struggle, just as Romans 7 describes, so it doesn't happen automatically, but we are impelled toward it. I like that language. That's Doug Moo's language. 
We're impelled toward it by the mercies of God that come to us in Christ. Such that the living sacrifice we present to God is actually holy and acceptable to Him. If it's not a response to the saving grace of God applied, then it's not a holy and acceptable sacrifice back to the Lord. We have already been cleansed by receiving the gospel and being reconciled to God and declared holy in hope of experiencing that as our salvation is fully and finally delivered upon the return of Christ. But until then, the living sacrifice that we present to God is wholly unacceptable to him. Because it's been cleansed by Christ and it's a response to his cleansing work. Our lives are his. And folks, we understand that. If somebody sees us in the path of a speeding car and dives and saves us at the last moment, we're indebted to them. In a sense, our life belongs to them. Not in the sense that we worship them. But our gratitude is surely awakened from that and we have a sense of responsibility to them. We, we, we send them Christmas cards for the rest of our lives. Remembering that line from, oh, now the novel just went out of mind, Dumas. Um, it'll come back to me. A man who could have been killed in a knife fight isn't. He's spared. And his response to the one who has shown him mercy is, I am your man forever. And they became friends that day. We recognize this. We see it. We present ourselves as a living sacrifice and it's holy and acceptable to God. And that is our reasonable, that's the, the word. It's, it's anchored to, to lagos, not to pneuma. It's our, it's our reasonable service of worship, but it's a word that the way it's used in Greek, it's, it's, it's a spiritual word. It's a spiritual worship. It's a spiritual service that is worship. That's our response. It's just what we do. It's, it's how we receive the salvation that is ours in Christ, we are God's man forever. And this one is worthy of our worship. And so, undiluted, undiverted, undivided worship is our response. It's what results from the holy, acceptable offering that we've presented to him. It's how we worship him. We worship him in spiritual service. We're his man forever. We're about his mission. That's our identity. That's who we are. Anything else is thinking more highly of ourselves than we'll ought to think. But we don't get to that until next Sunday, God willing. But Paul doesn't leave us here before going there. Vivid though this description is, he goes on to tell us more of what happens within us by God's grace that, that we should receive and embrace and pursue with our whole sanctified, undivided, undiluted will. He tells us what 
to do next. And really what he's telling us is how it all works. He calls us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. That's verse 2. There's the language. That's the second charge, really. The second positive charge. The first one, do not be conformed to this world. That, that's the title, actually, this morning, and I think it really is the heart of the matter. You know what? In view of God's mercies, don't be conformed to this world. But what's surrounding it are two positive charges, and that's what we're hearing because this is what gives us our marching orders. This is what points the direction and says, go. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice and be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In direct opposition to what happens more naturally because we still live in our fallen flesh in this world. Even though we've been born again into the next. We still live here and so we still fight to not be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, the continual work of God on our behalf. This world just naturally works to squeeze you into its mold. I love that description. That's, that's J.B. Phillips' translation of Romans 12 too. And we can see in this, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. That's an outside-in sort of conformity. It comes from the outside and it shapes us in the likeness of what we see around us. But God's Spirit works in our hearts, in our inner being. To bring about an inside-out sort of conformity, which is an actual change in who we are and in how we live, how we think, how we speak, how we reason, how we evaluate, how we relate, how we obey. It changes everything because... It's an inside-out change. It's a transformation. And that change, as it begins in our hearts and minds over time, makes us look more and more and more like Jesus. That's what happens. This word transformed is used in only two other places in all the New Testament. Three times it's used. It's used in Mark's account of Jesus' transfiguration in Mark 9, verse 2. And it's used again by Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Another favorite verse for many. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed. There it is. Into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So these two passages are related. The transfiguration of Jesus is the backdrop of Paul's instruction to the Corinthians there in that chapter 3 of his second letter. Paul attributes this inside-out change explicitly there in verse 18 to the work of the Spirit in the believer's life. And Mark's description of Jesus on the mountain with Moses and Elijah offers a visible illustration of that very work. Jesus being transformed into the glory of God, exhibiting the glory that he had with the Father before the world began, but also displaying for us a visible manifestation of the transformation that happens to us in him. 
Those who trust in Jesus are going to grow in his likeness as that trust is strengthened by their experience of his grace while living in this realm of Adam. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul called this process putting on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's being transformed by the renewal of the mind. Again, same language. It's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And he said that this renewal results from, earlier in the text, seeking the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. And it also results from setting our minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth, recognizing that we've died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. We belong to him. Where is man? Where is woman? Forever. And then Paul says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, and he returns, we will also appear with him in glory. That's a sweet day, isn't it? Anticipating that, the, the full delivery of this salvation that has the God who will not share his glory with another incorporate his redeemed people into a manifestation of his glory to the praise of that very glory and grace as we just sang together. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we will also appear with him in glory, the very glory Paul described to the Corinthians, which is a reflection of the glory that Jesus displayed on the Mount of Transfiguration and that same glory that becomes ours in our resurrection body that we'll receive when Jesus returns. But that's down the road a ways. Let's stay with our personal experience here and now because we're still in this world and still fighting it out to present ourselves and to be transformed. Our experience now is of the transforming work that's done in our hearts by the Holy Spirit as he causes the word of God to come alive in our heart and in our mind. And and enables us to walk in obedience to it and to experience the fruit of that obedience such that, as Paul writes here, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God. Wow. The transforming work of the Spirit is done within us, enabling us to walk in obedience such that by testing, by living it, we may discern what is the will of God, that we may live the will of God, we might say, not so much know it in advance and then pursue it, but live it, experience it in real time, spirit-enabled obedience, the obedience of faith, and therefore grasp that it is good and acceptable and perfect. That's where we want to live. That's what happens when we're transformed into the likeness of the Christ through the ministry of his word by his spirit. That our mind is renewed. The fruit of being born again is experienced. The growth in the likeness of Christ has started. It's developing. 
And we begin living out the will of God. Many of us are searching for the will of God. That's a, that's a subject. If you just asked any set of Christians, what do you want to hear instruction on, just topically? The will of God. I want to know the will of God. Well, Scripture is really explicit with us on what the will of God is, stating that explicitly. It's the will of God that you avoid sexual immorality. Right? It's the will of God that you live in thanksgiving, and purity. Right? There, there's many things, but here we're told that the will of God isn't praying and asking God and saying, oh, there it is, I'm going after it. The will of God is, oh, there it is. There it is. I've been enabled by the Spirit of God to walk according to the will of God, testing it such that I'm approving that it's good. Even when it's filled with pain, because there are promises from God's Word that, that shape us through that pain when we receive it according to His promises. And, and our lives are increasingly shaped in the likeness of a Savior who knew pain. The avoidance of pain is not the description of the will of God, such that we kind of navigate through life, steering around it like we're on a slalom course on a snowy hillside. That's not how it works. We follow God along the way, testing, discovering His will and granting along with it that it's good. It's acceptable. In fact, Say it with me. It's perfect. It's perfect. What a great follow-up to Romans 9 through 11. Huh? It's like by the Spirit's work, we know inside and transformed our minds have been renewed. Our hearts have been renewed. The mind is just the, the motivational center. It's, it's more like what we call mind and heart together. It, it, it's the motivational center of our lives. We know from inside almost instinctively what we are to do to please God. It's new, usually not a lack of knowing that keeps us from doing proving that wise and insightful though Plato was he didn't understand the fallenness of the human heart to know the good is not necessarily to do the good but by the spirit's work we begin to know to recognize inside almost instinctively part of that change part of that transformation what we are to do to please God and we increasingly love that experience. Just love living in that. Well, my friends, these two verses are the end, the intended outcome of all we've studied so far in this letter and they are the topic sentence over all the remaining instruction that we'll hear in it. These are the transitional verses summarizing everything that's gone before and pointing us along the trajectory of what's coming. And, and it's even bigger than that. There's one writer who said that Paul's whole written work could be seen as an extended application of Romans 12, 1 and 2. See, these verses stand at the heart of Paul's whole corpus of writing. This is the response of the believer 
to the manifold mercies of God. We hear this gravity as we read it. We hear this significance. We hear this comprehensive instruction. And we think, yeah, that really is the heart of the matter. There, in a nutshell, is the response of the believer to the gospel. And it immediately captures our imagination as a result. We long to experience what Romans 12, 1 and 2 describes. Don't we? Don't we? Don't we? Yeah, thank you. We long to experience what it describes, the transformation, freedom from the stamping press of this world that we escape only as we present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, an expression of our spiritual worship of Him, realizing the purpose of our existence. But still, it's so elusive, or at least it feels elusive. Our, our hearts and minds are so trapped in Romans 7 type struggles that we can lose all hope of Romans 12 taking root in us. Even though it's undeniably our inheritance in Christ. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul wrote to the Philippians. I honestly believe our only hope of getting over this hump is prayer. I think that's our only hope. We are so ensnared in the world and so far more deeply and tightly than we are even able to grasp. And it's only a passage like this that makes us aware of that. How do you think of yourself? Is it primarily as a worshiper of God and you really have a hard time even remembering anything else about yourself? Or is it just the opposite? I have a hard time remembering that I'm a worshiper of God, not to mention the fact that it's the primary truth about me. There's a picture. It's not intended to be condemning. It's intended to be revelatory. This is just the word of God coming to bear on our hearts. That's why we need help hearing it and understanding it. I believe our only hope is prayer, which is calling out to God to enable us to hear Paul's appeal in this passage and then to, to lean into the Spirit to enable our obedience to it and therefore our experience of it. Our experience of this holy transformation. God has to do this work in us. We are not equal to the task of obeying Romans 12, 1 and 2 in our own strength. It's so much harder to be freed from the snare of this world than we tend to believe. We are so much more deeply ensnared in it than we'd ever think possible. Only the loving God who's provided such a great salvation as the one that we've received by faith in Christ could even begin to possess the power to make the vivid descriptions of this passage, this text, true of us as a body. as a church, and as the individuals within it. That's our only hope. Would you agree? Toward that end, therefore, I'm going to finish a little differently this morning. I've asked two elders to come up to the platform and lead us in prayer. 
To do that, before we move to the table of the Lord this morning, one of them will ask our Father to enable us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Todd, come on up. And the other, asking him to enable us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Nick, if you would join us on the platform. No favorites being played here, just seeking two elders to lead us in prayer because we need God's help to hear and respond to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Agreed? Let's call out to him together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are at a loss <clears throat> because everything in us shrinks back at the idea of presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice to willingly and without compulsion lay aside our precious rights our well-earned prerogatives it feels father like giving away the store like giving away the only thing we have to sell and if everything in life is a negotiation, then we will find ourselves over a barrel right out of the gate. And maybe hardest of all, we'll have to lay aside our precious, carefully cultivated grievances that are polished and dusted so carefully for so long. How can we, how are we supposed to willingly just throw that precious cargo over the tailgate. But Father, as we read your word, there is a spark within us because we confess to a longing for something so much better. Our, our reflex of being defensive, of Futile self-protection and self-elevation and self-promotion and self-defense is not only transparently ugly, it is exhausting. And it is so utterly boring. We are not okay. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We read that Jesus came to give life and to give it more abundantly, and we choke on this confession, Father, that the life we live here in this place is often not very abundant at all. We long to live better. We want to dive headfirst into worship that is real, and we we ache to swim with strong, sure strokes, joyfully oblivious to self, joined to other true worshipers who day by day are becoming holy and pleasing to God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we need you to enable us to escape our poverty. Yet we know that we cannot get there on our own but we can sense it and we can taste it. And when we see it in one another, it is a beautiful thing, a supernatural thing. Father, help me. We long for so much more. We want to be lost to self. 
Keep us, keep me from grasping and clawing with regret and anger, letting everyone I know in a thousand ways the vast magnitude of all that we have given up. Hmm. It will take a miracle, Lord, nothing less than the work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to lay these earthly treasures aside gently, quietly, with an open hand at the feet of Jesus, that our worship would become something day by day more real, true, and fitting, and appropriate to our understanding and our growing imagination. Renew us and transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Heavenly Father, we uh, marvel at this passage. We marvel, Lord, at what you have accomplished in saving us. We think of all that Romans has taught us about our salvation, that we are slaves, that we were slaves to sin, and yet we've been set free from our bondage, that we were spiritually dead, and yet we've been miraculously raised to life, that we were corrupt creatures who have been made into new creations. But as much as we marvel at all you have saved us from, passages like this one today, Romans 12, 1 and 2, cause us to marvel also at what you have saved us for, for a new way of living, for a life of worship, for the giving up of our old ways in order to live in accordance with your good and perfect will. But Lord, as we look in the mirror morning after morning, we still see so much of our old selves there. We see old patterns of thinking. We see old sinful habits. We see old ways in which we are more like the world around us than we are like Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. And Lord, we even see new ways of living out the old self manifesting themselves in our lives. Lord, as you would expect from living sacrifices, we keep crawling off your altar in order that we might live for ourselves. Which is why we come to you today in this moment of sanity, brought about by the faithful preaching of your word. And we ask, and we ask only by the help of your Holy Spirit within us, that you would cause us to live once again for you, that you would lead us back onto that altar, that we might once again offer our lives to you in worship. That is the only thing that makes sense in light of your mercies. So teach us, Lord, to renew our minds. Help us to think of ourselves as we are in Christ and not in accordance with who we once were. Give us minds that find greater satisfaction in God and the God who saved us than in the sins that still lurk and tempt us. Lord, would you teach us to forsake those things that drag our thinking down into our old ways, whether it be our favorite news channel or endless scrolling on our favorite app or the relationships that draw us down into old ways. 
and capture our hearts with promises graciously given to us by the very lips of God himself through Jesus Christ, such as blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God capture us with the thought of seeing you clearly now born out of an obedient lifestyle that worships and follows you. Capture us with promises like, abide in me and I will abide in you. Allow us to grasp the madness and the insanity of following after our fallen will when we, in fact, have been invited to and even given divine power to walk in the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And would you place before us brothers and sisters in our lives who help us to think in accordance with this great gospel and help us to live out the lives that you have called us to live. In short, Lord, we are asking that you would transform us from the youngest of us to the oldest of us, from the most egregious and damning of qualities that still exist within us to the smallest and slightest of habits or traits that keep us from walking in perfect step with who you are and who you have called us to be. We ask, knowing it is only by your grace and your power within us that it will be accomplished. And so, Lord, we crawl onto that altar and we beg of you that as drastically as you changed our eternal state when we first believed in you, that you would change in equal measure and just as drastically our present way of living, transforming us to live like Jesus lived. And we know and to this we hold that our hope is only in Jesus and all glory evermore to him. For when the race is complete, still our lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen.